Hi, I'm Amy Goodman, host of Democracy Now! Please support our independent journalism at democracynow.org. That's democracynow.org. Your donation will be matched dollar for dollar. Thank you so much. Summit in Dubai, here in the United Arab Emirates, this is Democracy Now! The wounded and patients are on the floor. There is no life-saving health service in the hospitals of southern Gaza Strip. Hence, hospitals in southern Gaza have totally collapsed. The death toll in Gaza is nearing 16,000 as Israel intensifies its ground and air assault. The World Health Organization's warning, there are no safe zones left in Gaza. We'll get the latest and look at the link between war and the climate crisis. There is a correlation between military spending and emissions. The more you spend on big ticket military equipment, the more military emissions. Then to the 2,500 fossil fuel lobbyists here at the UN Climate Summit in Dubai. That's more than almost any other delegation. Fossil fuel lobbyists should not be here. The presence of the fossil fuel industry at uh, its climate negotiations shows the moral bankruptcy of the fossil fuel industry. You wouldn't invite arms dealers to a peace conference. There's more of them here because they know that the age of fossil fuels is coming to an end. It must come to an end. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, the War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from the UN Climate Summit here in Dubai, in the United Arab Emirates. The World Health Organization says the situation in Gaza is worsening by the hour as Israel's military lays siege to hospitals and intensifies its assault on areas it previously ordered the civilians to flee to. The death toll from the Israeli bombardment is approaching 16,000, with thousands more believed to be trapped under the rubble. 26 of Gaza's 35 hospitals are now out of service in the north. Israeli tanks encircle Kamal Adwan Hospital and began shelling the medical complex. Doctors say Israeli snipers are firing on anyone attempting to leave. Images from the hospital's courtyard show bodies swaddled in white sheets lined up in rows after medical staff were unable to bury the dead. In southern Gaza, an intense Israeli assault on the city of Khan Yunus has left hospitals overrun. This is Ibrahim Esbetan, whose two-month-old son was injured in Israeli airstrike on Monday. They told us to leave Gaza City. There's a war in Gaza. So we left the north and came here to the south, just like they asked. But this is what we found in the south. What can we do? This is my son. He was born on the second day of the war, and we haven't been able to register his birth yet. 
As he spoke, Ibrahim Espeton gestured to his infant son, who lay motionless while medical workers connected him to an oxygen supply. UNICEF, the United Nations Children's Fund, has called Gaza the most dangerous place in the world to be a child. More than three-quarters of Gaza's population is displaced, with some two million people forced into a 90-square-mile area in the south, which Israel is actively bombing. Among the dead is Sofyan Taya, president of the Islamic University of Gaza, a renowned researcher in physics and applied mathematics. Taya was killed along with his family in an Israeli airstrike Saturday in Jabalia, just north of Gaza City. On Monday, Israel cut phone and internet access across Gaza for the fourth time, plunging most of Gaza's residents into another total communications blackout. This comes as Israeli attacks continue to kill journalists at an unprecedented pace. On Friday, Montazar al-Sawaf, a freelance journalist working for the Turkish Andalu agency, was killed along with his brother and other relatives in an Israeli airstrike on his home. Al-Sawaf reportedly bled to death after no ambulances were available to save him. The Committee to Protect Journalists says at least 56 Palestinian media workers have been killed by Israeli forces since October 7. In Washington, D.C., State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller said Monday, it's too soon to judge whether Israel's been doing enough to protect civilians in Gaza. Miller was challenged by veteran Palestinian journalist Saeed Arakat. We think far too many people. I have not seen evidence that they are intentionally killing civilians. We believe that far too many civilians have been killed. But again, this goes back to the underlying problem of this entire situation, which is that Hamas has embedded itself inside civilians, inside civilian homes, inside mosques, in schools, in churches. It is Hamas that is putting these civilians in harm's way. A court in the Netherlands has heard a lawsuit brought by human rights groups challenging the government's export of F-35 fighter jet parts to Israel. Oxfam and Amnesty International argue the arms transfer violates the Netherlands' obligations under international law to prevent war crimes, citing Israel's wide-scale and serious violations of humanitarian law in Gaza. Dutch human rights lawyer Lisbeth Zegfeld argued the case. The state must immediately stop its deliveries of F-35 parts to Israel, that it is its obligation under Common Article 1 of the Geneva Conventions. It is its obligation under the Genocide Treaty to prevent genocide, and it is its obligation under export law. The position of the state that we can't confidently establish whether violations are taking place is a charade. A ruling in the case is expected in two weeks. In Tanzania, at least 63 people have been killed since torrential rains over the weekend triggered flooding and mudslides. On Monday, Tanzania's President Samia Suluhu Hassan cut short her trip to the COP28 climate summit to oversee her government's response to the disaster. Since October, persistent heavy rains across East Africa have killed at least 350 people and displaced about a million residents of Ethiopia, Kenya, Somalia, and Tanzania. A new report by the Global Carbon Project finds greenhouse gas emissions from fossil fuels soared to a new record high this year. 
with carbon dioxide releases approaching nearly 41 billion metric tons. Despite dire warnings over the rapid acceleration of the climate crisis, humanity has burned coal, oil and gas at a faster pace in 2023 than it did last year. Here in Dubai, a new analysis finds nearly 2,500 fossil fuel lobbyists have been credentialed to attend this year's COP28 UN Climate Summit. That's nearly four times as many industry lobbyists as attended last year's COP27 summit in Sharm el-Sheikh, Egypt. This is Drew Slatter of the group Pacific Climate Warrior speaking during a COP28 event on Monday. We can achieve a phase-out of fossil fuels. We can achieve 100% renewable energy. We can achieve a fair and efficient finance package for the energy transition in the Pacific. But the obscene number of big polluters at these climate negotiations threatens that. In Glasgow, fossil fuel lobbyists outnumbered Pacific delegates 12 to 1. Uh, if I'm not wrong, last year the number rose to 15 to 1. And the number this year is expected to be even higher. Later in the broadcast, we'll speak with Rachel Rose Jackson, the Director of Climate Research and Policy at Corporate Accountability, part of the Kick Big Polluters Out Coalition, which authored the report, Record Number of Fossil Fuel Lobbyists at COP28. In Aurora, Colorado, a trial is underway of two paramedics who face criminal charges over the 2021 death of Elijah McClain. Police videos show Jeremy Cooper and Peter Chichinek injected McLean with the powerful sedative ketamine after police arrested him and placed him in a dangerous carotid hold as he was walking home from a grocery store. McLean suffered a cardiac arrest within minutes of being injected and died days later. A pulmonary critical care specialist testified there was no reason to give McLean ketamine. Elijah McLean was in his 20s. Prosecutors also accused the paramedics of neglecting to assist McLean after they drugged him and he lay dying on the ground. Meanwhile, Aurora police officer Nathan Woodyard, who was acquitted last month of homicide and manslaughter charges in McLean's death, returned to work after a two-year suspension, receiving over $200,000 in back pay. Federal agents in Miami, Florida, have arrested a former State Department official who once served as U.S. ambassador to Bolivia, accusing him of working as an agent of the Cuban government for more than four decades. On Monday, Justice Department officials said Victor Manuel Rocha sought out and obtained positions within the U.S. government that would provide him with access to non-public information to pass along to Havana. However, the charging document reveals few details about what information Rocha might have shared with the Cuban government. And the U.S. Supreme Court heard arguments on Monday in a case challenging Purdue Pharma's bankruptcy plan, which shields members of the billionaire Sackler family from civil liability over their role in creating and fueling the opioid epidemic. In 2019, Purdue filed for Chapter 11 bankruptcy protection as it faced thousands of lawsuits seeking trillions of dollars in compensation from the Sacklers, who profited from selling the highly addictive drug OxyContin while fully aware it was directly fueling the opioid epidemic in America. According to the CDC, opioid overdoses have killed over half a million people in the United States over the past 20 years. Outside the Supreme Court Monday, family members held photos of loved ones lost to the opioid crisis. 
This is Rebecca Finnerty, whose son died of an overdose in 2016. They were all little slaps on the wrist with little financial fines. And if that continues, there's really no real justice here for what's what's happened in this country. There are hundreds of thousands of lives that are gone and a fine doesn't do it. And hiding behind bankruptcy protection because you're a billionaire, they're worth $11 billion. And it's ridiculous that they profited off the deaths of our children and are walking away with And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from Dubai in the United Arab Emirates at the U.N. Climate Summit. The World Health Organization is warning the crisis in Gaza is getting worse by the hour as Israel intensifies its ground and air assault across all parts of the Gaza Strip. UNICEF says there's, quote, no safe zones remaining in any part of Gaza, where the death toll from the Israeli bombardment is approaching 16,000. Israeli troops have reportedly encircled Jabalia, the largest refugee camp in Gaza. A spokesperson for the Gaza Health Ministry said hospitals are struggling to cope with the surge of patients. The wounded and patients are on the floor. There is no life-saving health service in the hospitals of southern Gaza Strip. Hence, hospitals in southern Gaza have totally collapsed. They cannot deal with the quantity and quality of injuries that arrive at the hospitals. It is difficult for the ambulances to reach the injured in the targeted areas. The Israeli occupation targets ambulances that move in the southern areas of the Gaza Strip. It prevents them from reaching the targeted places. On Monday, the president of the International Committee of the Red Cross, Mirjana Shloperich, traveled to Gaza. I've just visited the European Gaza Hospital, and the things I saw there is, is beyond anything that anyone should be in a position to describe. What shocked me the most were the children with atrocious injuries and at the same time having lost their parents with no one looking after them. We are facing a situation here that will not be healed by sending in more trucks. We need to provide protection to the civilians in Gaza, to the women and children, to the elderly people that I saw today that have nowhere to go. The majority of people met today have been displaced several times. I met people who have lost limbs because they needed to evacuate between treatments. And they lost a hand or a foot because they couldn't be treated in the hospital where they arrived first. I was told today that the North has lost its entire surgical capacity. That's ICRC President Mirjana Spoljaric. We begin today's show in Jerusalem, where we're joined by Shana Lowe. She's a communications advisor in Palestine for the Norwegian Refugee Council, has spent much of the last 15 years working in Palestine. Shana, thanks so much for joining us in this very desperate time in Gaza. Can you describe the overall situation to us? What we're hearing from our staff on the ground in Gaza is just that day after day, things are getting more and more hectic, chaotic, desperate. 
We're hearing about massive influxes of people fleeing Khan Yunus, fleeing south and west to barren areas of land where there's no facilities able to accommodate them. We're hearing about shelters that are overwhelmed and bursting at the seams and cannot house any additional people. We're hearing about uh, people being so desperate that they are sleeping on the streets, trying to salvage whatever materials they can find in order to build a makeshift shelter. Yesterday, our office lost internet connection because people had actually cut the ca internet cable in order to, to use that to, to help make a shelter. This is the level of desperation that we're getting at. Stores have shut down because there's no food available or no stocks available to be sold. Yesterday, our staff survived on eating crackers because there was nothing else available. Day after day, the situation is getting more and more desperate. About 1.9 million people out of 2.3 million, over 80% of Gaza's population is internally displaced with nowhere to go. We desperately need a ceasefire in order to, to be able to finally address these dire needs um, because we cannot address them while there are ongoing hostilities. It is simply impossible. So much of the population has moved from the north to the th south, uh, Khan Yunus and even more south. Um, these are places that they went to because the Israeli military said they would be safe. Now they're saying in order to destroy Hamas, they must bomb those places as well. Where are they telling them to go, Shana? You know, they're telling people to go not to safe places, but to so-called safer places. But what we've been seeing for the last eight weeks in Gaza is that there simply is no safe place in Gaza. There's no place that's safe from bombardment, uh, from land, air and sea. We're seeing that there's no safe place for people to seek shelter, not only because of the ongoing bombardments, but simply because there aren't facilities able to accommodate so many people. People are being exposed to the elements. They're in uh, overcrowded uh, shelters where they are, where there's diseases spreading. We're already hearing about hepatitis A being detected inside some of the UN shelters. Uh, there really is no safe place. We have been calling on Israel to stop these directives, calling on people to flee. These directives are violations of international humanitarian law because Israel is neither guaranteeing the safe passage of people to reach areas of safety, they aren't guaranteeing safety in those areas, and they aren't guaranteeing people the right to return home once hostilities have ended. Uh, can you talk about what is happening in the hospitals and also how many staff do you have in the Norwegian uh, Refugee Council in Gaza and what has happened to well, their families? What we're hearing about uh, the situation in hospitals is that there is a desperate need for additional beds. Uh, there are about 1,500 beds I heard from the World Health Organization yesterday during a briefing. There's an estimated need of around 5,000 beds. There used to be 3,500 beds in Gaza. So we're seeing as needs increase, we're seeing the number of beds decrease. Of course, there's a shortage of chronic shortage of medical supplies, medicines, uh, clean water just to make sure that that places are sterile and that patients can be treated safely. We've been hearing for weeks reports of maggots coming out of people's wounds because they cannot be properly cared for and treated. We have a staff of 54 currently inside of Gaza, 
And thankfully, all of our staff has has stayed alive, but I cannot say that they are safe or unharmed. Multiple members of our staff have lost family members. We had one staff member, Amal, who had followed Israel's directives to flee from the north. She fled her home in, in, in northern Gaza and ended up in Rafah, where the home she was seeking shelter in was bombed, killing her only child, her seven-year-old son, Khaled, and killing 10 other members of her family. Just this week, we had another colleague who was uh, injured in an airstrike on Rafa, allegedly one of those safer places, uh, and two of her family members were killed. We have staff who are sleeping on the streets because they have no place to go, including one staff member who has a two-month-old baby. Uh, they are unable to find shelter. People are, are desperate. We are doing the best that we can, not just to support people, ordinary people in Gaza, but to support our staff but we are increasingly finding our hands tied and are and are unable to do things because it's not safe for us to operate. We cannot reach the aid that we have stored in warehouses in Gaza, either because the roads are cut off or because it simply isn't safe for us to access them. Have you been able to reach people in Gaza? We've been trying all morning. People we have been able to reach in the past, we cannot reach today. I was able to be in touch with my colleague Yusuf this morning. He um, told me that he was on his way to go and check on the rest of his family who are staying in Khan Yunis. I, unfortunately, because connectivity is very difficult, I hadn't been able to get in touch with him uh, since the early morning. I reached out to, to one of our security managers because I was concerned that I hadn't heard from him. And thankfully, about 10 minutes before I came on the air, I got notice that, yes, Yusuf was safe and had reached our office, returned to our office. But this is the this is the difficulties and, and challenges that we're living with, where we're wondering not just um, if our if our staff is okay, but wondering if we'll be able to connect with them. It's it's not just worrying on a personal level because these aren't just our colleagues; these are our friends. These are the people that we work with day after day. But also, it's impossible for us to have any type of uh, humanitarian response without being able to coordinate that. Neither coordinate between our office in Jerusalem and our office in Gaza, but also with our staff in Gaza who are trying to manage this response. If they can't get in touch with each other, our, our operations come to a standstill. I want to ask you about a comment of State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller, who said it's too soon to judge whether Israel's been doing enough to protect civilians in Gaza. He was challenged by a veteran Palestinian journalist, Saeed Arakat. This is a clip. And you don't think that Israel intentionally kills civilians? We think far when too many people. I, I, I have not seen evidence that they are intentionally Very killing nice. civilians. We believe that far too many civilians have been killed. But again, this goes back to the underlying problem of this entire situation, which is that Hamas has embedded itself inside civilians, inside civilian homes, inside mosques, in schools, in churches. It is Hamas that is putting these civilians in harm's way. Can you respond to what State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller said? From what we've been seeing and hearing, it's, it seems that Israel is not proportionate in its response, is not adhering to international humanitarian law. While there may be legitimate military targets, the, the principles of humanitarian law of distinction, proportionality, and precaution still apply. It, when 70% of, the, of those who are killed 
are women and children, it seems that that proportionality is not being taken into consideration. Just yesterday, uh, it was reported that Israeli military officials said that they would start employing technology to try and lower the number of civilian deaths. The fact that they're realizing that they need to lower and have the ability to lower the number of civilian deaths would indicate that prior to that, that they they were not taking those appropriate precautions. They were not uh, they were not uh, making sure that their attacks were proportionate according to international humanitarian law. And it seems that uh, with the the indiscriminate bombardments that are happening, it's impossible to distinguish between civilian and and uh, military objectives. Shana Lowe, we want to thank you for being with us. Communications advisor in Palestine for the Norwegian Refugee Council has been in daily touch with her colleagues in Gaza, usually several times a day when connectivity allows, has spent much of the last 15 years in Palestine. When we come back, we look at the link between war, militarism, and the climate crisis. Stay with us. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from COP28, the U.N. Climate Summit in Dubai. As Israel continues its bombardment of Gaza, we turn now to look at how militarism and war fuels the climate crisis. A new report warns that increased spending by NATO nations will divert millions of dollars from climate finance while increasing greenhouse gas emissions. We're joined now by two guests. Shireen Al-Jodi is a women, peace and security expert from Lebanon, member of the MENA Middle East North Africa Task Force with the Women and Gender Constituency at COP28. She's also a member of the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom in Lebanon and the MENA and Regional Liaison Officer at the Middle East and North Africa Partnership for the Prevention of Armed Conflict. And Deborah Burton is here. She's co-founder of Tipping Point North-South. She leads their transformed defense project focused on military emissions and spending climate change and climate finance. Co-author of the report, Climate Crossfire, how NATO's 2% military spending targets contribute to climate breakdown. 
published with the Transnational Institute. We welcome you both to Democracy Now! Uh, Deborah Jordan, let's begin with you. Um, Talk about what you have found in this report. We're going to go specifically to the conflict just hours from us right now in Gaza and what that means. But broadly, talk about the link between NATO, war, and climate change. I mean, I think the first thing I want to say sitting here alongside Shirin is I don't think we can be seeing a more extreme example of a war machine in operation than what it is we're seeing and hearing from from Gaza. Uh, I just want to say that Israel is the 15th largest military spender in the world, and it's spending $24 billion a year on its military, and, and you're seeing this let rip. On a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a population that really cannot defend themselves. Um, so what we've been working on uh, with Transnational Institute um, and Stop Wolf and Handle in the Netherlands is this, this report, Climate Crossfire. Climate Crossfire is actually a companion piece to a report we wrote last year before COP, and that was looking generally at how military spending accelerates climate breakdown. Uh, so that was a general picture. This year we're looking, we're focusing at NATO, on NATO. NATO is a 31-member strong military alliance. And just to give people a kind of general, a little bit of context to help orientate themselves, global military spending now is $2.2 trillion per annum. It's rising. It's risen something like 20% in the past 10 years. NATO accounts for half of that. So 1.1 trillion per annum accrues to NATO. And this is all before Ukraine and Gaza. So this is all going to start taking a sharp incline up. Generally, in terms of emissions, the global military are estimated on patchy data because they don't fully report. But... um, something in the order of five and a half percent of global greenhouse gas emissions. Um, uh, And again, to put that in context, that is more than the 52 countries of the African continent that come in at somewhere in the order of three and a half to four percent. That's the total greenhouse gas emission burden. It's hardly a burden for 52 countries. the global military come in at five and a half percent. So to look to NATO, to come to NATO, which, as I said, is a 31-member uh, military alliance, accounts for half of military spending. In terms of emissions, it currently would rank, if it were a country, NATO would come in at 40, the equivalent of the Netherlands, for example. Um, and with this 2% of GDP, uh, request, what, what NATO are asking the 31 members to do is to increase on what they're spending now and get their military spending, annual military spending, up to 2% or more of GDP. Okay. So what we worked on, we, we asked the question, well, what, what would that mean for greenhouse gas emissions and what would it mean for military spending? And we worked over this eight-year period of 2021 to 2028. And in the case of military spending, it, it would be over that eight-year period accruing another $2.57 trillion over that eight-year period. And that $2.57 trillion would, would get you, as an example, 118 years, 118 years of that paltry $100 billion climate finance figure that was agreed at in the Paris uh, um, 
meeting in 2015. And what do you mean by climate finance? So this is the 100 billion that was agreed in 2015 at Paris. Clinton announced in Paris. As support, climate support, climate finance support for the world's most vulnerable countries. And we, the rich countries, are legally bound to, to deliver that. So what we're trying to do with the scale of military spending, which is in the trillions, it's in the trillions, is to put that alongside these, on the one hand, pledges, and on the other hand, gaps. There are, there are so many climate finance gaps. Um, the 2% GDP target for NATO members in terms of emissions, so there is an emissions burden to this. Currently, NATO is sitting, again, you know, it, it, it's something in the order of, you know, in the order of the Netherlands, emissions in terms of emissions. That 2% increase over that eight-year period, again, we calculate would bring it, bring it closer to Russia, Russia's emissions burden. Russia is a major, you know, oil-producing country. It's something like 2 billion tonnes of CO2 in equivalent. In fact, actually, uh, President Putin is expected to be here in Dubai tomorrow. What can we say? I mean, you know, you, you, it's clear here at COP, and, and certainly in terms of this issue that we're working on here, you, the military emissions story, and it's primarily because of Ukraine, and, and now with Gaza, suddenly we are able to get some oxygen of publicity. We, you know, we're here now talking about this because of this collision between uh, conflict, wars, conflict-related emissions, which I should say is not in that 5.5% estimate, this estimate of 5.5% of global military, uh, greenhouse gas emissions, according to the military, does not include conflict. doesn't include conflict. So with Ukraine and now Gaza, we are able to, to illustrate, to show, to, 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 as I say, bring oxygen of publicity to the fact that there is an absolute correlation between military spending. So the more you spend on your big-ticket gas-guzzling, fossil fuel, totally fossil fuel-reliant hardware, the jets, the tanks, the bombs, the missiles, all of these things that we are seeing raining down on people, they are all fossil fuel dependent. There is an absolute correlation between military spending and the emissions that, that, that come from that, from that hardware. And we are going in the wrong direction. We are absolutely going in the wrong direction. And the NATO 2% target, for example, is completely counter to all climate targets. Say what you mean by two percent target of GDP. So, so NATO must are saying spend on the they are asking their thirty-one members to spend. I remember 2%. Trump, President Trump, kept saying, "You yeah. are not paying In your fact, fair more, share." And and more, we need you to spend. We need you to spend more. And it doesn't really stop at NATO. NATO have allies in other parts of the world who are looking at two percent or more. So this two percent of GDP, it's important. It doesn't sound like very much, but it's very significant because you're talking about orders of billions over a period of time. I want to turn to uh, Shirin El-Jerdi. Um, we just <clears throat> came in on Saturday night. Sunday, there was a major protest um, against what's happening in Gaza, calling for a ceasefire. Um, there were at least 100 people protesting, holding a sign that said ceasefire. You were one of the people there. The names of the dead were being intoned throughout the protests. You just heard our last segment uh, talking about what's happening in Gaza. You're with the Women's International League for Peace and Freedom. Can you talk about the connection between war, weapons and militarism directly what's happening in Gaza? Yeah, we can see like the gloomy picture just like 
by what we saw now and by Deborah, the uh, numbers that she gave. This is a gloomy picture that we have and definitely what we see and what we know is that women are disproportionately impacted by conflict. So what about if you have lack of infrastructures? Especially when we talk about conflict, it means we're talking about lack of infrastructures, lack of infrastructures of peace, of institutions, and also lack of the rule of law. And unfortunately, this is all unfolding in Gaza and the Middle East at large in other conflict areas as well. But maybe now we're talking about uh, Palestine per se and what's happening in Gaza. What's happening is, is tremendous. I mean, I could not even believe that we are living this at this moment in our history. This is too hard even to believe that we are witnessing that. We are witnessing that within our own eyes. And I think it's just obvious, like the impact of militarization on women. And we've seen it in different spaces. We've seen it, like as now was mentioned, like in hospitals. We've seen it uh, with mothers. We've seen it like uh, at the grassroots. How and many women were pregnant in Gaza? Almost 50,000 women were pregnant at that time. And if, you, if we have seen with the lack of electricity, when electricity was put down, we saw even these infants struggling, struggling to breathe, to continue living. And unfortunately, lots of these newly born kids were also killed. And this is a, a, not only a genocide, I mean, this is, goes beyond humanity. So the, the nexus between climate, militarization, gender is highly now needed, especially now that we are in the COP, especially that the issue of militarization is not put on the agenda. And at times, like we see that the circle, if we really want to talk about emissions, if we really talk, want to talk about fossil fuel phase out, if we really want to talk about uh, GST, if we want to talk about real impacts and outputs out of this cup, we really need to look at militarization. We need to look at, at it from first the resources, the production, the export, the import, and how it is being used. Like now in Gaza and also in Lebanon, the white phosphorus bombs. I don't know if you noticed or if you saw in TikTok, it went viral how, how they're telling people how to remove the white phosphorus bombs. We're used you to mean the white phosphorus from their skin. Yeah, from their skin because it will keep on going into your skin. And what about the implications that it has on the soil? What about the implications that it has on the water, on the earth that we are having and breathing as well? I want to read you something from Al Jazeera. Um, from polluted water supplies to toxic, toxic smoke-filled air, from burning buildings and bodies, every aspect of life in Gaza is now filled with some form of pollution. There's evidence of Israel using white phosphorus weapons both in Gaza and South Lebanon. Uh, this has disastrous effects on both the environment and people's health. Uh, you're focusing on Palestine. You yourself are from Lebanon. Yeah. Uh, Amy, it's, it's, it's in, in, in Palestine. We saw it with our own eyes. And we saw because of the many journalists that they're risking their lives and many who lost their lives as well, risking to take photos and to document the atrocities that are being done. In Lebanon as well, we have seen also have 
how phosphorus weapons were used and we saw also how this huge area, green areas of olive trees were burned and put down, whether in Gaza or in Lebanon. I mean, it's a huge catastrophe, whether at the forest level, whether at the human level, and it's going beyond, beyond issues of actual present and direct impact to the, uh, the, 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 the trauma, the trauma that everyone is living. And this is from Euromed Human Rights Monitor. Due to technological developments affecting the potency of bombs, the explosives dropped on Gaza may be twice as powerful as a nuclear bomb. Exactly. That was even like two weeks ago before the ceasefire. So I, I could see like now I was even scared to see because, I mean, it's, it's, it's too... You, you cannot even watch these bombs that are being... Yesterday I was watching... Um, I, I follow several journalists and I was watching her and she was saying... Now, this is a massacre. If these, like now, bombs are being used while they, we are called to go to the south to a safe space, but there's no safe space. So this is meant to terminate us. Deborah. You absolutely can't talk about this without the arms industry. Yeah. Because, I mean, they're all, you know, when we talk about even emissions, um, the arms industry, the supply chain for militaries are more polluting than the militaries themselves may come as a bit of a surprise, but they are, they are like this. The arms industry, just in the way that um, you can track oil uh, through, and, and military, the military's use of oil through war, of course, when they're in, you know, at war, oil, oil usage goes up. So you can track profits, war profits, to the arms industry. There's, there, is, there is no story without, without fully addressing the culpability of, of, of the arms trade. And I, you know, I've brought something I want to read because it will apply to Gaza. It absolutely will apply to Gaza. Their stock shares, their shares are going up as soon as any conflict hit. They're making profits as it is. It's a very nice life. Thank you very much as it is. When conflict kicks in, it's off the scale. So this is the CEO of Raytheon. Okay. And I, and I want to read this. Yeah. Everything that's being shipped into Ukraine today, of course, is coming out of stockpiles, either at the DOD, the Department of Defense, or from our NATO allies, and that's all great news. Eventually, we'll have to replenish it, and we will see the benefit to the business over the coming years. That's a guy called Greg Hayes, CEO of Raytheon. Israel, Israel's suppliers, everybody that's involved in the food chain, the kind of war machine food chain that is enabling Israel to do what it is doing on Gaza, will be making money. They will be going home very happy with their, with their bottom lines and their, and, their, and their profits in their back pockets. Well, I want to thank you both for being with us. Um, and we will link to your report. Uh, Deborah Burton uh, is... Uh, the co-founder of Tipping Point North-South. Uh, she leads their Transform Defense project, focused on military emissions and spending, uh, making the link between climate change and militarism. And Shireen El-Jurdi, women peace and security expert from Lebanon. Thanks so much both for being Thank with you us. Thank you for having us. When we come back, we're going to talk about the record number of fossil fuel lobbyists here at the UN Climate Summit in Dubai. Stay with us.
Left Eye People Go. Max Roach with the JC White Singers. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. We're broadcasting from COP28, the UN Climate Summit here in Dubai in the United Arab Emirates, where a record 2,500 lobbyists are registered to attend this year, nearly four times as many as last year. They're from companies like Shell, Total, and ExxonMobil. They outnumber the delegations of every country except Brazil, which is set to host the summit in 2025, and this year's host, the United Arab Emirates delegation. The summit's presided over by the CEO of the UAE's national oil company, Sultan al-Jaber, who has said there's no science behind demands for the phase-out of fossil fuels to address the climate crisis. Earlier... This week, activists addressed the massive number of lobbyists at the COP during a side event. This is Eric Nijiguma from Kenya with Fridays for Future MAPA. Brenna Two Bears with the Indigenous Environmental Network. Drew Slatter, uh, Pacific Climate Warrior from Fiji. But first, David Tong with Oil Change International. You wouldn't invite arms dealers to a peace conference. And the oil lobbyists here at the climate conference must not stop this conference from succeeding in delivering a phase-out of fossil fuels. The presence of the fossil fuel industry at uh, its climate negotiations shows the moral bankruptcy of the fossil fuel industry. Fossil fuel lobbyists should not be here. They weave a web of greed and sacrifice zones, like the Dakota Access Pipeline. They have received over $3 billion from Bank of America, which is the same bank that's also interested in the Energy Transition Accelerator, an ambitious initiative that was announced by the U.S. Climate Envoy a few days ago. We will not stand by while these false solutions are heralded as the solution to the climate crisis. There is only one solution to the climate crisis. Decolonization and an indigenous just transition away from systems of extraction. Before this press conference, I was speaking briefly with a few other Pacific climate warriors about the sheer number of fossil fuel lobbyists present here. Um, And a well-known Pacific climate warrior, Brianna Fruin, Uh, spoke to us about it and she said it's because they're scared. Um, There's more of them here because they know that the age of fossil fuels is coming to an end. It must come to an end. The people have spoken. The science has spoken. Um, All that's left is to ensure that these processes no longer allow them in the room so that our negotiators, our leaders can take the necessary steps to keep us below 1.5 degrees of heating. That last voice you just heard was Drew Slatter, Pacific Climate Warrior from Fiji. For more, we're joined by Rachel Rose Jackson. She moderated that event here at the UN Climate Summit. She's Director of Climate Research and Policy at Corporate Accountability, part of the Kick Big Polluters Out Coalition that just released their report, Record Number of Fossil Fuel Lobbyists at COP28. Welcome to Democracy Now! It's great to have you with us. Thank you so much for having me. You know, we've just been talking about Gaza and what's happening there. And I'm wondering if you can talk about the Israeli bombardment of Gaza at this point. Nearly 16,000 people are dead. Um, The connection, if you will, between that and lobbyists here at the U.N. Climate Summit. 
So when it comes to the systemic injustices in the world, we can't look at these things in a vacuum. We have to zoom out and look at them globally. And when we do that, we can see very clearly that the same geopolitical powers, political elite, and even abusive corporations who are responsible for burning fossil fuels, delaying action, and fueling the climate crisis on one hand, are the same political elite and abusive corporations who are responsible for standing by and even enabling the genocide that's playing out in Gaza. And when it comes to genocide, there isn't a side. There's only the 16,000 and counting lives that have been lost without any justification. And it's the same thing with the climate crisis. There is no justification for the millions of lives that have already been lost and impacted simply because of the greed of polluters and Global North governments who have enabled this crisis to happen. So these systemic injustices, they don't happen in a vacuum, and they also have the same source. That also means they have the same solutions. And there is you know, no climate justice without human rights. And there's also no climate justice on occupied lands. So everything that we're seeing here is so relevant to everything that's playing out in Gaza and in other places where genocide is happening around the world. It's the same problem, and we need to hold the same people to account. You know, Rachel, when we asked people about the lobbyists who are here, everyone said you have to talk to Rachel Rose Jackson. So talk about this report that you came out with, how you figured out that there were thousands of lobbyists here. It was very interesting to hear David Tong when asked about lobbyists. Why can't they be here like anyone else? And he said, if you were holding a peace conference, would you invite arms manufacturers to it? I mean, it's exactly that. And I don't think it's just me. You know, this whole coalition, Kick Big Polluters Out, we're 450 organizations and networks around the world representing millions of people who are all united in challenging what's happening here in these halls and demanding an end of fossil fuel lobbyists and big polluters to write the rules of climate action. It's the same thing that, you know, as David Tong said, if your house is burning down, if it's on fire, do you hand the hose to the arsonist? No, but that's exactly what's happening here. So the number of uh, lobbyists, nearly 2,500, uh, we said at the beginning, it's equal, it's larger than any delegation here except the host now, UAE, they have something like 3,000, and the host going to be in two years, uh, Brazil. Exactly. And not only that, but there's a record-breaking number of fossil fuel lobbyists who are here at this talk. Last year in Sharm el-Sheikh, there were around 630 known fossil fuel lobbyists. The year before that, 500. So this year, there's a four times increase in the number of fossil fuel lobbyists here promoting a deadly fossil fuel agenda. Do you think it's related to who is president of the COP of the UN Climate Summit, uh, the Sultan al-Jaber? It's definitely who is head of the, one of the largest oil companies in the world, ADNOC, the Abu Dhabi National Oil Company? It's, it's definitely impossible to ignore how front and center the fossil fuel influence is at this particular COP. I mean, as you just said, it travels all the way up to the highest levels. But this problem is as old as these climate talks are. You know, from the very inception, there have been no measures to protect these talks from fossil fuel industry influence. How do fossil fuel lobbyists affect the talks? Where are they allowed in? Where aren't they? They're allowed everywhere. They're allowed right behind us where we are. But more than that, they're allowed even in places where civil society doesn't have access to. These fossil fuel lobbyists are often given country delegation badges. So these pink badges you might see some people wearing, and that gets them into rooms that 
I and even you could never get into. It gives them direct access to the literal ears of the decision makers who are writing the rules of climate action. It gives them a seat at the head of the table. And it, it doesn't even stop there. They're also literally bankrolling these climate talks. They're paying for these talks to happen. They're signing the checks. They're signing the dotted line of the outcomes that come out of these talks. So their fingerprints are all over what's happening here. I want to turn to uh, Brenna Two Bears. You had this side panel um, this week um, that was really interesting. Uh, Brenna is Diné, uh, Brenna Two Bears from the United States. Uh, she's with the Indigenous Environmental Network. <laughs> We are here today to address the climate crisis. So why was there twice as many fossil fuel lobbyists at COP26 than indigenous delegates? Why are we as indigenous people only allowed to have an observer status, but fossil fuel lobbyists are allowed to have direct access to parties? The more lobbyists that are here, the higher our emissions rise. And in a report released by the Center for Biological Diversity last month, the Biden administration has approved 17 massive fossil fuel projects estimated to release the same amount of emissions as 440 coal-fired power plants. The reason why this is so important is because for those of us who grew up on the Navajo Res, for those of us who didn't have paved roads in our homes, who didn't have running water or access to electricity, but we had these coal-fired power plants in our backyard, that number is preposterous. It's awful, and it breaks our hearts. I used to haul water to my grandfather's house. That same clean access to drinkable water would have been available to him if it hadn't been taken from the Navajo Aquifer, which is one of the most pristine sources of groundwater in the world, and transported to the Black Mesa coal mine in order to slurry coal to the Navajo generating station. Not only was it wasting so much water, about 4,400 uh, feet of groundwater a year since 1971, but it wasn't going to any of the communities that were on the Navajo reservation. Thankfully, because of the grassroots movement from the Hopi and the Diné, who are out there in Arizona and the southwest area of the United States, we were able to shut down the Black Mesa coal mine in 2019. And we were able to stop the use of that Navajo generating station, uh, being able to slurry that coal in 2001. That's Brenna Two Bears with the Indigenous Environmental Network. And this is Pacific climate warrior Drew Slatter speaking at the side event here at the UN COP Summit uh, on Monday. We need to remove fossil fuel lobbyists from climate negotiations if the Pacific is to have a shot at survival. 
bloodshot, it is possible. It often feels like it's not, but it is possible. We can achieve a phase-out of fossil fuels. We can achieve 100% renewable energy. We can achieve a fair and efficient finance package for the energy transition in the Pacific. But the obscene number of big polluters at these climate negotiations threatens that. In Glasgow, fossil fuel lobbyists outnumbered Pacific delegates 12 to 1. Uh, if I'm not wrong, last year the number rose to 15 to 1. And the number this year is expected to be even higher. Drew Slatter, Pacific Climate Warrior from Fiji. Our guest is Rachel Rose Jackson, who pulled everyone together to talk about the detrimental effect of the lobbyists here uh, at the U.N. Climate Summit. In fact, right behind me, you may hear the noise getting higher and higher. People are lining up because uh, Sultan al-Jaber is just about to hold a news conference, or at least to speak, Rachel. Yeah, he is. And, you know, as I alluded to earlier, it's for sure fair to say that the fossil fuel influence could not be more obvious at these talks. But we have to remember that these talks have been co-opted to serve the fossil fuel agenda since they began. There have been no measures since day one to protect these talks to ensure that they deliver the action that people on the planet deserve. You know, whether the cup is in Poland, the coal capital of the world, or the United States, the world's largest historical emitter of fossil fuels, and, I might add, the world's largest obstructor at these talks from a government perspective. These cops are infested with fossil fuel influence. You're a specialist on pushing tobacco on the world. Now you're talking about climate. What is the model that was used? We just have about 30 seconds. It's important to understand that the UN climate talks are the exception, not the norm. Other UN bodies, institutions around the world, they all begin with making sure that there's insulation from keeping the source of the problem out of solving the problem. That's happened with the UN Framework Convention on Tobacco control, as you mentioned, but it has never happened here. So now we are so far into the process. We are running out of time. We must kick big polluters out. We must end their ability to write the rules of climate action. We must end their ability to bankroll these climate talks and reset the system so that it can finally end fossil fuels and advance real solutions and save millions of lives that don't need to be lost. Well, Rachel Rose Jackson, we thank you so much for being with us. Director of Climate Research and Policy at Corporate Accountability and the Kick Big Polluters Out Coalition released the report record number of fossil fuel lobbyists at COP28. We'll link to your report. A special happy birthday to Igor Marino. I'm Amy Goodman.